Alrighty, so I'm very excited to be hosting this panel on the future of venture with some fantastic co-investors today. So I want to start, we're going to just start with a quick fire round on our intros and we're going to do like a minute each. I want the cliff notes, okay? None of this, you know, rambling. So Sarah, let's start with you. How did you get into venture and how are you doing with your own fund now? I was an operator turned investor, like many others out there, did, did some angel investing nights and weekends, found I really loved it and decided to go into it full time. I joined Bain Capital Ventures, where I was for four years doing direct investments. I was also leading a fund of funds program there, reinvesting in solo GPs. Some people on this call are familiar with that program. And honestly, I just looked at what all those people were doing, like Packy and Turner and you, Harry, and I really felt like I wanted to get back into the early stage solo GP game. And so I've just started Sarah Smith Fund recently to focus on pre-seed and seed investing, uh, focus on founder CEO feedback and people ops office hours. So I'm super excited to be here. I mean, smash the Cliff Notes edition there, Sarah. Packy, your turn. <laughs> how did you get into venture? And talk to me, how did you come to run the fund? Yeah, completely accidentally. So uh, when COVID hit, I was unemployed. I'd quit my job right before COVID. Um, started this newsletter uh, just kind of part-time to see if it would go anywhere. Uh, and it ended up growing. I write about tech companies and startups. And so started investing as, as I was writing about these companies. I was doing some SPVs on AngelList, which was a great experience, but like maybe not enough certainty uh, for founders and, and for me. And so decided uh, to launch a fund, Not Boring Capital, uh, in 2020, uh, did fund two in 2021. Um, and we're focused now on pre-seed, seed, series A companies at the frontiers of bits and atoms. It sounds like buzzword bingo, but I'm looking for companies with the most complex, ambitious stories, because I think that's where we can add the most value. Don't worry, Packy, you do more deals than I do podcast episodes. It's cool. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, uh, Turner, hit me. By the way, no one said I was going to be nice on this panel. It's no, like, no, it's, it's going to be fun. Okay. It's right before lunch. Um, Turner, hit me, my friend. How did you get into venture? And also, I don't know this. Why banana? Yeah, uh, I'll answer it all in hopefully one minute. So yeah, I grew up on the internet as a kid, was always an investor, kind of made the connection. The further back you go, the lower the valuations are. You got to invest at low valuations if you want to be a good investor. And kind of was like, oh, VC, that makes the most sense. Um, so yeah, just continue to use the internet, wrote online, Twitter, um, initially really serious stuff, added in a little bit more comedy and humor, still doing more serious stuff, uh, used it to get an internship, then got a job, teamed up with some guys, was helping with fundraising and every LP was like, hey, Turner, you need to raise your own fund. Uh, and so that's what I did. Uh, obviously a lot more complicated than what I just described. <laughs> and then, yeah, mostly invest in, I guess, like web two, as I describe it, consumer, social, e-com, fintech, digital health, and just broadly marketplaces. And on the enterprise side, you know, B2B marketplaces, vertical SaaS, bottoms up SaaS, just boring stuff everyone else invests in. Uh, and yeah, that's we're mo mostly pre-seed and seed. We do a little bit of later stage checks, a little bit of following on. Um, but it's a pretty small fund in the future. We'll probably raise, you know, bigger funds, et cetera, but not trying to get too far ahead of ourselves. So, and banana was, uh, honestly, you've all tried to come up with a name of, uh, of a company or a fund. It's very hard. It's all taken. So my wife was after probably about eight hours over the course of a couple of weeks of brainstorming, she was just like, Apple is the most valuable company in the world. Why don't you name your fund after a fruit? I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually a good idea. And banana was just the one that won. So 
Can I ask, do you even like bananas? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I love them. Okay. I probably uh, eat I probably eat like one a day on average or like five a week, I would say. Wonderful. I didn't even plan it, but I actually have one right here. It's oh, perfect. amazing. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I might munch while we're... You've, well, you've got a farm turner. Check it out. Well, yeah, bananas are actually the most consumed fruit globally. So if I wanted to pitch like the Silicon Valley startup version of the name, it's like, you know, bananas are mass market. Everyone uses it. They're kind of like startups too, where every banana is actually like a clone of another banana, which is like startups basically. And when one banana in the field gets a disease, they all catch it really quickly and they all die really quickly. Again, just like startups. Um, so me and Paki are sitting here thinking you really need to get out more, but okay. Cool. <laughs> um, good. Uh, I'm glad we covered that off. Uh, guys, I want to start on actually fun sizes themselves. I think it's the most important thing. I think your fun size is your strategy. Um, I, I don't like the panels where we kind of go down, but just to set the scene so people understand where and how we invest, like what are our fun sizes and why did we choose that fun size? And then I'm going to dig right in. So Sarah, fun size and why that fun size? Yeah, I'm fresh off of figuring all this out. So happy to chat about it. Um, so one of the things I observed running fund of funds with solo GPs is just what's kind of like the realistic check size relative to the value add that you're going to bring to the table, where if you're not leading, where can you really consistently win allocation in the very best companies? And different people do different methods, but what I'm seeing personally is the sweet spot for what I'm going to do is something between like 100 to 250K, maybe a little bit more. But I just think if you start getting up to 500K to a million, it starts to get really challenging to get into the very best seed companies. So I picked, a, I picked check size, frankly, first, and then built my portfolio construction and my fund size around that. So I am focused on a little bit higher, higher velocity and a little bit larger portfolio size. I'm raising it as a rolling fund, but I'll be investing in roughly 25 companies per year. And my investors have to subscribe to two years. So all of my investors will have exposure to about 50 companies. And then I'm investing about 250. So I'm roughly going to be raising a, a 20 to $25 million fund as a result of that. So that's how I picked my fund size. And I intend to keep pretty disciplined to stick to that. Size. I, I'm, I'm totally from my experience I'm with you on the 100 to 250 being like the comfortable to get into the best above 250 you get the like now you're pushing it Sarah and you're like Oof. totally agree uh Paki hit me my friend tell me about yours yeah I'm in the 30 uh 30 million dollar range um and I thought about it very similarly I started with a 10 million dollar fund with the thesis being I'd have to do $100,000-ish checks, and that's what I'd be able to get in. Um, and I'd have to write about every single company. That second part of the thesis didn't end up being true, and so was able to do kind of a, a higher volume and velocity. But as I kind of evolved it, I'm thinking of kind of similar size fund, but fewer bigger checks. Over the courses of the first two funds, I've seen that I've been able to get larger checks into companies that I am really excited about. And so we'll write things from 250 to a million dollar checks and have been able to get in a million. You know, if you go to the series A, it's easier to squeeze uh, a million in, in a lot of cases. Uh, so 250-ish earlier, 500 to a million uh, in the A. How many companies do you want, Paki? How many companies what? How many companies in the portfolio? Uh, I mean, there's about 100 in each of the first two uh, portfolios. Got you. Dis discipline picker. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I keep going back over the list. I know that's like the obvious, the obvious knock on it. I keep going back over the list and I, I love the companies in there. So, I mean, like there's obviously going to be ones that I, that I 
miss or that I'm, you know, haven't done enough diligence on because I've, I've done a hundred, a uh, hundred investments, but I use the angel estate. I mean, we're all here because of angel list right now. I, I refer back to that angel estate where like the real goal, if you're going with that strategy is to not miss uh, the really great ones. And, and so far so good on, on that piece of it. And if it means that you, you know, lose a couple of hundred K investments along the way, that's part of the game. It totally is. I had this argument with Tish from Box on the show recently there, and he's like, the, the crucial part of that, though, is you have to contain fund size. Well, above 30, you can't be doing that. Do you know yeah. what I mean? For sure. Then that's why I'm, you know, starting to starting to tighten up and go bigger. The other piece of it is, like, I do think, and we can talk about the creator angle, and I'm sure you see this as well. Sure. If the fund math works with 100 companies and keeping the fund size small, what doesn't work is supporting, you know, 500 companies over the life of five funds, particularly when our value add is kind of putting our name behind the company and explaining what they do and all of that. And so if only for that reason, I'm really excited to, you know, for the next funds, focus down on fewer companies and throw the whole kind of not boring package at them. There's a lot for us to dig in on that, Packy, but uh, Turner, I want to go to you next. Uh, tell me about Banana, so size and number. Yeah, so uh, similar thinking where it was actually started with how much money can I raise? Because for me, it wasn't like, hmm, should I raise 100 million or 2 million, 200 million? It was like, can I even raise like a million dollars? Like that was really my my first thinking. So I was like, okay, well, for my first fund, it was okay. 10 million, I think is reasonable. And also it's really hard to mess up. Like to everyone's point, 100K check, if it goes well, can healthily return and give really good returns on a $10 million fund. Um, and kind of the, 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 the idea was, 100k to 300k checks you know a couple smaller than that a couple on the, the larger end um but yeah like every check could return the fund pretty straightforward i feel like portfolio construction doesn't matter as much when you have a small fund it, it always matters but it, there's less and so when you're when you're like you know fund size is a strategy it's like the strategy is just make good investments pick the right ones get in the right stuff that's the strategy of, of a smaller fund um one, so yeah, one as like we oh go ahead sorry. No, I'm just intrigued. One that I constantly go back and forth on, and I've had it with a lot of LPs when I send my investor updates, um, 50K checks. So like, why are you doing 50K checks? And so my first one was $8 million for the first one. Like, why are you doing 50K checks? Right now, my best performing investment is a 50K check. So th there's a question of like, what's too small? And then what's like big enough? How do you guys think about that? Because I'm sure we've all been even cut down to 25 in the Sequoia of Sequoia premium rounds. How do you think about the smallest you'll go? Yeah, I mean, I can go first, I guess. Like I think about it as a percentage of the fund size. So if you're writing, I mean, if we're just using a $10 million fund as an example, like if you do 100K check, after fees and everything, you know, it's like 1.2% of the portfolio. Like if you can put... 1% of the portfolio into one company and that one company net of all carry dilution, et cetera, hundred X's, it returns the fund. So, I mean, with a 50 K check on an $8 million fund to your LPs point, it's a little bit harder to make the math work, but I don't know what the, what's that like 0.6% of the fund 0.7, something like that. So like, if you truly think that's going to be a 200 X, it could return the fund. And if you're getting it at the right valuation, it could be fair. I'm assuming with your small fund, you were probably, you are also probably with some of those smaller checks, some people think about them as marketing dollars. Like I put a 25K check into a round that everyone's going to see and associate me with other people that might not return the fund. Maybe it contributes like 0.3X in DPI or something, but it 
it it downstream led to a bunch of other things that happened that did have meaningful um, returns behind them that like meaningfully, you know, return dollars to the fund. So I think that's one way to think about it too. Um, I don't know if what everyone else thinks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I don't know. I, I think that the, uh, the, the desire and the, the need for every fund, every check to return the fund is like, certainly I think a good bar to hold yourself to, but like not a rule that you need to stick to in practice all of the time. Like, 100x is 100x and if that marginal 50k would have gone taken another check from 200 to 250k and that was a 50x like your money's still better if you just put it in that company that went 100x there are some 50k checks that i've written that i'm really happy about and there are some that i'm like i wish i hadn't done that and i think the the border is if i'm like really high conviction and i can only get 50k in but i think this is going to be a world changing company then hell yeah i'm going to put 50k in if it's kind of like I'm not sure about this one. I'm going to put 50K in. That's when I'm like, just don't do that investment. And I think like that's one of the big learnings for me over the past uh, couple of years has just been, if you're not 100% you know, convicted, if you can like talk yourself into the numbers and why the market's big and why you really like the founder, but like you just don't love it, don't write that small check. Just don't do the investment. Do you worry if you do it, then you'll, other investors will see you on the cap table for 50. And in future rounds, when you're doing a deal with Excel, Sequoia, Benchmark, they'll go, oh, just push Packy down from 200. He does 50. We've got him in for loads of others. I'm not as worried about that necessarily. I, I do think there is with solo GPs in general, and we can talk about this. I get a lot of like, hey, we have like 10K of angel allocation left in the round. Do you want it? And it just doesn't work for the fund math, obviously. So you have to have that conversation. But I'm not worried about the perception because I can just say like, look, I know I can add value to this company. I'm not doing that for 50K. And particularly now, I wouldn't do it for 50K. But for pre-seed and a company that I'm really uh, highly convicted on that I think I can grow with over time and add value to, then then sure, I'll put that in and I can have the conversation with the lead in the next round uh, when I want to get more in. Yeah. I might be in a little bit of a different spot because I have a very specific product that I connect to a 250k checks. So I've productized this practice that I've been doing as a board member where I do a full CEO 360 review because turns out it's the only person in the company that doesn't get a performance review, but arguably has by far the most impact on long-term returns of that investment. Um, in fact, like there's a study that uh, if a founder is involved with the company in the long run, like either a CEO or as president, somehow involved in the very, very long term, they're four to five times more likely to be a top 25% performing company in the public markets, which is like quite significant. So my thesis is that I can help tilt the odds in their favor to go the distance, then that will produce superior returns for my LPs. But this process is like not trivial. Like I introduce, I interview all of their direct reports. I interview their board member. And so to, to deliver that value add, I have to have 250K in the round. Like I cannot take 50K and go do that. So that's now talk to me in a year and we'll see how this is. I just started deploying, but I am so far like sticking to it. And I just won't make the investment unless I can get my allocation. So I love that. Can I ask though, like it's one of those, products where you might not need it until you've broken do you know what i mean mm -hmm. and so a lot of fans yeah. are like i don't need that i'm doing great the product's great the team's great and then they break themselves in 18 months and only then you realize is there a customer education process as to why that's needed and how do you get yeah. them to see the importance of it yeah so i i've done this for my own portfolio companies when i've been on the board already uh, and that spans from like pre-seed companies all the way to series d plus companies um 
but I think it's best used. So I agree. I don't expect people to do this. Like if it's a pre-seed company with two co-founders, it absolutely makes no sense. So if they get to do it at a time of their choosing, I recommend typically like around series A when you start to get to 20 to 25 people, because your role as CEO really starts shifting and how you lead, how you manage the team, how you work with investors. And that's a time that can be pretty critical to like the long-term success of the company. But if they want to wait and do it at series B when they have 50 to hundred people, whatever works best for them, that's fine. I just, I don't push it aggressively. I just nudge them to remind them that this is available to them. And then I also have people ops office hours that I just have available to my CEOs to book on demand. So like if they, I ran HR and recruiting at Quora for many years, and that's also an area that a lot of pre-seed and seed founders just don't have anybody on their team who's done HR. So they can just book that in the meantime. This is why we don't have schedules. This is too interesting. Sarah, like for founders listening, what are the signs that things are starting to break? Often things break in like step changes in company evolution. What are signs for founders operating today that even maybe without them knowing it, things are starting to break already? Yeah, I mean, definitely you see things like um, really inefficient meetings. So for example, like you you used to have the five person stand up every morning where everyone told everybody what everyone was doing. Well, now that meeting is like 18 people and nobody is looking forward to it. It just feels really repetitive and boring. And that probably is a sign that you haven't shifted responsibilities. You haven't shifted like into certain types of structure. Um, A lot of times it's around, it's around company communication. Um, Either there's too much or people are saying, I used to know what's going on, but now I don't really feel like I know what's going on anymore. I don't know how I fit into this picture. So those are things. Um, Time management is like a classic thing. A lot of founders, I mean, I don't know anybody who doesn't struggle with time management, but especially at that stage when you're starting to ramp up with 10, 15 employees, like how do I spend my time? I like don't have time and I don't feel like I'm doing anything well. You should speak Um, to Turner. You could give him a lesson or two. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot, I mean, there's just a lot of different, uh, I mean, it's just a hard job. It's a really hard job. Like there's no, I don't think there's like any point in time when a CEO doesn't benefit from someone taking an outside perspective on how are you doing in your seat, given the stage of your company and what's to come over the next 12 months. Like that's just valuable to any CEO. Loves this. Um, that's fantastic. Um, I, I do want to touch on, you know, obviously we've been tasked with the future of venture, which is, you know, quite a bold title. Um, when we look at the future of seed in particular, I'm intrigued here. We had like, you know, 07, 08, the first generation, your soft text, your, um, you know, Chris Sacker's oh, the first rounds, your floodgates. And then kind of, we have this explosion from, you know, the likes of us uh, in the last few years. Um, and then you also have like multi-stage coming further and further down, especially more so with the migration away from B and C rounds. When we look at like the next three to five years of venture at Seed, who do we think are the dominant players and segments? And how does that look in your mind, given those kind of three alternate options? And I'm just throwing it out there so anyone can put their hand up and say, I've got it. I have no idea. I mean, solo GPs obviously are going to win the future, um, but no idea. I mean, I, I think it's it's really going to depend on the industry, the particular company. I think for founders that are, you know, experienced and have worked with certain funds before their old companies, it might make sense for them to work with those same funds again for founders who are really good and, and competent uh, and don't think that they need, you know, 
a board and and all the things that come with a large fund at the early stages. Working with a solo GP or a bunch of angels, you know, I, I'm sure in this down market, party rounds are are not as in vogue as they were before, and there are certainly challenges like actually getting what you need out of your cap table. But I still think well structured party rounds can be really helpful. I mean, if you look across this call. There's four different people with funds here who can add value in four somewhat overlapping, but at least Sarah's different uh, kind of ways. And I think there's ways to construct your uh, cap table in in ways that can you can get the max benefit out of the company. That means not a lot of 25k checks, but a bunch of 250k checks. Um, I don't know. I, I I think it's hard to predict the future, obviously, but I think that it'll be some sort of mix like we see today. Paki, how do you solve the problem? Just sorry, quickly on that. You said there about like value extraction. A lot of founders, I'm sure, want you to write about them when you invest. How do you solve that conflict of like, I, I invest, but it doesn't mean I feature you? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just very clear with that upfront. Um, and one of the tricks that I've done, and, and I think probably going forward as I write larger checks, this goes away, but I do these posts. Like those, those write-ups are advertising slots, right? So I give portfolio companies huge discounts on those, but I think just adding a price to those like deep dives on companies at least makes founders think like to, to Sarah's point, when is the right time in our company's trajectory to do this? Like, is it our pre-seed announcement when there's not much to write about? Probably not. Uh, is it series A when we're hitting this inflection point where we understand what our product market fit looks like and where we just want to pour fuel in the fire, hire a bunch of people? Probably. Uh, and so I think it's being honest up front that it, it doesn't come with a write-up uh, unless it's, you know, a million dollar check, then, you know, I'm all in. Um, but uh, then making working with the founder to find the right time to to do it for their, their company. Sorry, Sarah, I interrupted there. And I'm fascinated to hear your thoughts. Also, obviously coming from Bain as well. It's yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I think I was just reading the other day that um, there's some prediction that like there's seven trillion tied up in private securities today and that's projected to go to something like 30 trillion in the next nine years so like 4x so if i think about that like what does that imply for multi-stage funds which then trickles down to seed and my guess is like there's gonna be a lot of appetite for dpi in the next three to five years and i think multi-stage firms are gonna feel a lot of pressure to produce distributions which then would have you kind of think like do we really want to be spending a lot of our time with hundreds of seeds in our multi-stage portfolio or would we rather let people like Packy and Sarah and Turner and Harry go out and like get them to more product market fit and let's revert back maybe to focusing more on series A and larger checks where we know our time to distribution is going to be necessarily shorter I don't know it feels like I could imagine a pendulum swing where the seed kind of goes back to what it was, which is traditional seed firms, obviously a lot more solo GPs. Now, I think we will see more, I don't say party rounds, but I think like the RUV vehicle is picking up a lot of steam. I could imagine that becoming a much bigger part of it, um, where there'll be always the like crazy distribution of, I saw like a billion dollars valuation seed round get announced recently. I mean, there'll be those, but for the most part, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see some of the the multi-stage funds who got very, very active in seed in the last few years start to migrate more and more of their portfolio back to later stage, which would be great for us. It just means that, you know, we, we again have to be committed to like the long term and, and taking, maybe taking on even more, frankly, of support for our founders because multi-stage firms have built these big platforms and, and maybe they are going to be pickier with seeds. So I don't know. We'll see. I just think there's gonna be a lot of pressure for DPI. It's so funny. I think so much is like repetitive in history, like multi-stage firms for decades 
have gone back and forth in seed. Um, and oh. they realize it's a nightmare. They ruin their brand. They spray too much around and then they retreat back to A and B and then they come back and then they go back. I think the interesting question is like, you know, I speak to a lot of founders and they're like, oh, but you know, Excel or Index or Sequoia or you name it is. And like, these are fantastic brands and I respect the people a lot. Um, but when you're a pre-seed or seed founder, it's very um, attractive and uh, good for your confidence and ego. How do you advise founders who have multi-stage money offered to them at seed in terms of choosing the right partner? And I don't want to lead the witness here, so it may be different for different companies. So love your thoughts on how you advise. I'm happy to take it because I did do a lot of pre-seeds and seeds while I was at Bain. Um, and so a lot of mine are now raising follow-on even seed after pre-seed. And um, I mean, I think it's stuff that all of us would do. Which, like, it's I don't necessarily think it's terrible. That, I mean, I came from that world. So I do think if you have the right partner who's ready to roll up their sleeves and has bandwidth, I think the, the key is like, do, do they have bandwidth? Like how many boards are they on? Do they have time for you? And then talk to other founders they've funded in the last six to 12 months and find out, did they act? Like, are they actually showing up? Are they spending time with you? Are they adding value to your company? Especially given like, what are you doing as a company? And does this partner have a thesis in the space or some unique distribution advantage for you? So it's, it's just like you'd kind of pick any other investor, but I do think it's really around bandwidth. And then there is this reality, which is like, you will need them to do follow on. And so do you feel like they have influence within their partnership to get you what you need for subsequent rounds? And I think that's a, I mean, that's certainly a challenge that I think any junior partner faces is how do you start to advocate internally for your companies um, in subsequent rounds? So it's not an easy thing to do, but I don't think it's like there should be some blanket, like never take money from a multi-stage firm at seed. Like there could be really good reasons to do it. I've had founders do it really successfully. Paki, yeah. China? Yeah, I was going to say, um, Adding to, to Sarah's point, like I, I kind of have two two lenses I'm thinking through right now on on the multi stage discussion. It's like partner bandwidth, kind of like a rough framework I give to founders. It's like what is the check they're writing as a percentage of their fund size or AUM? Like it might be great they're giving you a five million dollar check, but if it's like a ten billion dollar fund, it's like point zero zero zero. There's like multiple zeros in like percentage of the fund. Like, I mean, they can give you like. 30 minutes a year or like 10 minutes a month or like it's it's almost immaterial for you so like that's that's it's not always like right like to sarah's point like there might be an individual partner who runs 100 million and like it's a big percentage for her but i usually give like the rough framework it's like hey you know it looks like a big check but it is very very small compared to taking money from like founder collective they have like 100 million dollar fund they give you five million dollars you're five percent of their time that's a, a lot um kind of the other lens I'm thinking through looking through right now is it's probably less exciting for everyone listening to this but um when you think about but you've, but you've spoken about bananas so, <laughs> I, I mean fuck yeah, it, why we're, not <laughs> we're in some, some a wide range of topics here um well when you think about like who's giving money to the multi-stage funds and the seed funds it's like these institutional LPs they have tens of billions hundred billion maybe even trillion dollar portfolios you have your different asset allocation buckets your public markets are probably down quite a bit. You probably had a significant chunk of your assets in fixed income and bonds, which you thought were roughly flat, but 10-year treasuries are also down 22% this year. That's your cash balance that you're probably funding a lot of your venture investments with. You're maybe funding it with distributions, but you're also kind of using that fixed income bucket to, to hold some of those venture distributions. That's down. And it's like the worst year ever for uh, 10 year US treasuries. Like, I think that stat was like since 1788, 
I don't even know if 10 year treasuries existed then. Like, is that like <laughs> in history? I don't, I don't know, but that's how people are making new investments in venture funds. Like the people who give us money, their cash position is down 22%. Like they thought that was steady. So I just think that flows through into everything. It's like how hard or easy it is to fundraise, how they're thinking about their investments. Like they're probably saying, okay, to some of the earlier points, it's like, well, we do want to focus on DPI because like we need to get money back. So we're going to focus on like series E and D because, oh, guess what? Those are actually way better value now than they were a year ago versus C. Valuations haven't changed a whole lot and they're not going to get any money back for 10 or 15 years. So that's kind of the lens I've been thinking through. It's like, man, it's going to be really hard for people to raise money. Um, and I think that flows through like what the future looks like. At 10 years, maybe it's more decentralized, but in the next couple of years, it's like, and it's already showing up in the data. It's like, do I give money to to Packy or Turner or Sari or Hera, or do I just give it to Index again or A16Z? Like, you know, I'll give them a hundred million dollars and they'll get me the twenty percent IRR. And you know, I maybe I could have gotten more if I did the bucket of these like emerging managers, but it's riskier right now, and I'm not trying to take any risk. So I don't know if every LP is thinking like that, but that's kind of the framework, and I'm kind of braced for the worst. So. Jesus, Turner, that's an optimistic slant. Thanks for that. You're an advert for solo GPs, aren't you? How do we how do we remove from cool guys? What useless participant? <laughs> um, I think the other challenge is like also like we've been super slow to remark our books. Like the whole adventure has been, and like when we have remarked our books, we've remarked them thirty percent. And they probably should be 50 or 60% down. And so actually the weighting of public to private in LP books is either like Wait. not true or not proportionate. And I think they're very much aware of that, which is causing the, I don't want to catch a falling knife. And so I'm going to delay deployment on net new funds because I don't know where my portfolio is actually sitting. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of them probably over allocated last year too. So you have all these things, less cash, way whacked up valuations, allocations messed up. And then also there's too many relationships. So they're like, I don't even want to talk to this Harry Stebbings guy. I got to figure out which of the four of the 20 funds I'm re-upping on. Like, I don't have time for new ones. So do you think that, or do you think they said, I don't want to talk to banana? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'll put, I'll put my back there, but you know what, Donna, you do. Um, <laughs> Paki, save me from this, please. <laughs> I'll be more positive going forward. I, I promise. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. <laughs> I can't, I can't even remember the question now. Um, it was uh, the future. It was the, you know, it was like. Oh yeah, Packy. Yeah, three to Packy, five years. Packy, do you agree with actually his negative sentiment on like LPs consolidating towards major brands? I, I actually think broadly for the time being for this like weird uncertain period where things haven't been marked down, where public markets have certainly been marked down, where everybody's over allocated, where they have to maintain relationships. I mean, I think it's in a lot of ways where, the same way that, VCs are kind of conserving cash and not making as many new investments, but they are supporting existing portfolio companies. I think there's, you know, if you're hoarding, you want to make sure that you keep your existing relationships. Do I think that lasts past the next year? I certainly, for the love of God, hope not. Um, but I do think right now in this kind of uncertain period, doubling down on existing relationships, whether you're a VC or an LP, seems to be uh, kind of a default. And then for the braver, riskier ones, for the the bold out there in the audience who are writing LP or VC checks. Like I do think now is a good time to invest in uh, either emerging managers or certainly new startups. Like I've never been more excited in my whole entire two year venture history uh, about the companies that are raising now and the prices that we're seeing and just like all the different things that are kind of coming into place kind of in the background apart from the finance side. So I do think now is a 
good time to deploy into new things, but do I think that people are generally kind of scared and uncertain and consolidating a little bit? Yeah. Just to provide yeah, a little bit of happiness to this talk, guys, there is a net new world of LPs that is going to inject billions and billions and billions of dollars into this ecosystem, which I'm not saying is a good thing, by the way, actually, on the flip <laughs> side, that may be problematic in other ways. But I do think there is a whole new world that has never entered venture before. I mean, I sit in Europe, there's a class of European corporates, which has many, many billions of dollars ready to deploy. There's a class from, uh, you know, uh, the Middle East, which now with um, certain commodity prices being higher, they have a lot more cash, um, who are you know, willing and wanting to deploy billions and billions of dollars more. I, I think I do think there's a little bit more optimism to be had here. Team. Yeah, and I I think the valuations are way lower than they were last year. But then also for us, the, oh, it's pause, easier. Pause, pause, pause. Well, where are the valuations lower? I'm not seeing this. <laughs> what? Well, I think just broadly, like the entry points. You know, you're getting in at 15 million posts in a seed instead of 25. Um, well, and then I'm also seeing like more allocation available, right? So in, in, instead of hundreds of funds trying to get into this round, it's like there's no lead yet. Right. So for someone like us, it's like, it's just easier to write the two. I guess I didn't mention earlier, but um, I have scaled up my check sizes a little bit from what I mentioned earlier. So it's like 250 to 750. It really just depends. Um, and so it's just like, I'm finding so many cases where the founders are like, yeah, there's maybe like some tangible value add or whatever, but like the discussions on getting a 500K or 250K check in are way easier than they were last year, in my opinion. And maybe that's Turner specific mm -hmm. things that have changed, but it's just, when you have less, like the supply and demand balance was just super messed up, where there's just so much capital and not enough good founders. It's like, maybe there's, and not like the same amount of good founders, maybe there's more, I don't know, maybe there's less, but the capital, it's like off the screen. Like my hand is like below the screen right now for like, this is a podcast. Like you, there's just no capital. So for us that are, that are still here, that are still investing, it's like, oh, instead of fighting for the 50Ks we were talking about earlier, it's like, no, I can just slot in the 250K and they're asking me to invest more and like they need help putting the round together. So that's also happening too, um, Turner, which is good for you, us. It's just you. Founders are just like, oh my God. Yes, Turner. Banana capital. Turner. Everyone else, no. Sequoia, right. Maritz, Turner, <laughs> Banana. This is your year. Yeah. What okay. do you want? Do you want a Sequoia tree or do you want a banana tree? <laughs> Only one of them gives you food to eat. So... Mm -hmm. This is a that's good uh, team do we believe the narrative of uh like we're not a, I, I see everyone like kind of uh, um, um like uh, how do I, shitting i don't know if that's like a swear word or not but like shitting on vcs um for like oh we you know we're investing but they're actually secretly not from all the conversations i have with every investor every investor is still as active looking for deals as ever before i haven't met anyone who's not doing deals uh, so I think it's yeah, do you agree with my 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 thinking or are you seeing something different? I mean, I think being later is super quiet. There's no question there. Like that's just been I thought that was actually going to pick back up September, October after everyone took summer off. And I, I feel like it's still slow. It feels like the later stage stuff. I do feel like people are kind of just writing off 2022. They're like, maybe let's see how 2023 feels and maybe we'll start writing more checks, but I feel like the later stage is not really happening. I agree with you. I feel like pre-seed and seed is extremely active. Like yeah. top of funnel feel like the numbers for me has been almost the same. Uh, and actually summer was really busy for me too. So I don't know. I, I mean, it's good. I think the cost of getting started is so much lower. So there's just a lot of people out there with great ideas. And, and now with like all the LLM 
frenzy. It was Web3 like a year ago. I mean, there's just like something new for people to be tinkering with and getting excited about. So yeah, I'm I'm definitely seeing it very active at the early stage. Pakitana? Same thing. And, and uh, you know, I think that prices are coming down on rounds where companies are struggling to raise. And I think there's plenty of rounds that are getting done at the same crazy prices early on that they were before. And it's almost like, I don't know, this is probably the wrong way to think about it, but pre-seed and seed stage companies are almost Veblen goods where like the higher price I see on those early rounds. I'm like, is that a higher, that must be a higher quality company and then make you take a, a second look. And I think a lot of those rounds are still happening. And a lot of people are going to get laid off from big companies or leave big companies and start their own thing. And so I think pre-seed and seed is going to be really healthy for a while. And, and I do see a bunch of people writing checks there as well. Packy, are you more price sensitive today? Like, I, you know, I got sent a deal last night, top tier fund, best of the best leading. And it's like 1 million ARR on a 50 million price. 2021, I would have probably turned over another card. This year, I'm like, good luck. Joy of missing out. Like, have fun. Peace out. Uh, are you more price sensitive? Um, I mean, I, I, I was, you know, definitely like I did some, some more expensive rounds in 2020, 2021. I wouldn't say that I was fully price insensitive. There were just a few that I really wanted to be in. And so was able, you know, love the founder of the market, the whatever piece of it, uh, and understood that markets price things. And I know venture is less efficient than the public markets, but I do believe that there's a market price for certain things um, just based on kind of the demand. And I'm not going to sit out and play for like whatever happens to fall into the, you know, five X revenue bucket. Um, that said, I'm just more sensitive generally right now. I mean, I, I think there's just more, at least in the areas that I'm investing, which is kind of like, again, buzzword bingo, web three and one side biotech, uh, you know, manufacturing, all of that kind of stuff. There's so many good companies being built right now that I'm just more sensitive across the board, whether that's valuation, whether that's product quality and traction, all of those things. I think without the kind of speed and hype of 2021, everybody can afford to be a little bit more patient uh, this year than they were last year. Connor? Uh, what was the question again, specifically? Thanks for showing up, mate. <laughs> well, I just I, I heard Packy's response like, "What was he even answering?" Are you finding people still investing? Are you more price sensitive? Take take mm. any Turner, really. Yeah, in in terms of yeah, I, I think like people are still investing to everyone's point, but it just feels like the pacing is lower. Um, like there's a report that Angelus puts out that I like read every time. It's amazing. It's just their data that they're seeing across their platform, like number of seed deals, average valuations for like different bands and everything. And like to everyone's point, the the top percent percentile of pre-seed and seed rounds are still what most people would say are like obscene valuations, right? Like pretty high. Um, the bottom, again, even like the bottom quartile hasn't moved a lot, but the, the deal count, I, I believe like seed is down 55% in the past like wow. nine months or something. Um, I for that number is probably not correct, but Angelus has this report that they put out just on, on what they see on their platform. So, you know, it's possible fewer people are using Angelist. Um, I think that's a bad decision. I think you should absolutely use Angelist. It's a great platform. Um, but so it's like it, that it was kind of surprising to me because to like to what some people have touched on, I kind of thought more people like more of the later stage funds would just drift to seed because it's easier. Like, 
less diligence, faster, you know, sexier maybe. Um, but, but also then, yeah, it's harder to manage your portfolio. Like it's hard to be on, be managing 10 companies instead of one with the same dollars. Um, so I think I'm kind of noticing that on pacing side, et cetera. Um, yeah. And then in terms of price sensitivity, I mean, I would be lying. I think everyone would be lying if they didn't say they thought about it more. Um, but yeah, I think when you're investing super early, it doesn't really matter. Like it does matter, but it doesn't matter. It's like portfolio construction where it's like, if the company is going to go public, it doesn't matter if you invested at five or 10 or 20 or 30 million, like, oh man, you got 150 X instead of a 200 X. That's probably the best in your portfolio anyways. So it's like, well, but, but pause, sorry. I'm being old school here. No, yeah, you're, yeah. Wrong. you're wrong. Eight pre <laughs> versus eight pre versus 30 is phenomenally different for your returns. But I, I think that's, I, to Turner's point and to my point on kind of just the market's price things, is it better to, yes, of course, would I like to get into the same company with the same check size at eight versus 30? Like, hell yeah, I would like that eight all day. <laughs> would I like to miss that 100x because I held out for the eight instead of paying 30? No. And so I, like, I, I do, like, the answer I think is probably somewhere in between, but I think whenever it's framed that way, it's like, yeah, of course I should put you know, a quarter of my fund, I should be super concentrated, but a quarter of my fund in that company that is raising an $8 million valuation that's going to go public in 10 years, like my returns are going to look pretty awesome if I do that. But like the reality on the ground ends up being a lot different. You have to decide, is this a company that I'm willing to take less potential upside for? Because I think that chance of that upside is, is higher. I think you're totally right, but I think you have to look at average entry price across the portfolio. For sure. If across the 60 or, you know, 100, uh, it's, you know, 30, not blended 14 or whatever that is, then yeah. well, I think you really start to see a problem. For sure. Well, I think too. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I would say the top thing on my mind, actually, with evaluation at this stage is like, to me, it's a lot also around founder judgment. Like if they're really going after for like 35, 30, 40 posts, at seed with no traction like for me it's a little bit like do you understand what you're up against and what you have to live up to to raise the next round and repeat founders do I think first-time founders often don't and I think they can really mess up not only that particular round but then what their chances of success of getting the next round are so I I kind of I don't care about the exact number. It's more of like, are you going to achieve what you need to achieve with this round if you're at this valuation in order to raise you know, even at least something slightly up, which if you don't, it's gonna be very demoralizing to you and your employees. So like, like step back and think about the long-term picture here in terms of what valuation is right at this stage. I think Albert Wenger actually tweeted the other day that in his 20 years or so in venture, he's only ever seen two down rounds and we often talk about them, but the impact of morale is so significant and that it's actually much rarer than we think, which... I thought was really interesting. Um, well, team, in terms of like founders themselves, obviously we've covered that from like how we're investing. For founders that you have in your portfolio or for founders listening, how do you advise them on fundraising in this portfolio? I, I never like to time fundraisers to markets, but how are you advising your founders and founder friends on whether they should go out and raise now, later, extend runway? What does that advice look like if you were to kind of generalize it? I know it's company specific, mm. but general sentiment. Yeah, I guess I, I usually just say you should raise money when you look like a good investment, not when you need money. Um, sometimes that's not good advice because they might need money and they don't look like a good investment. Um, 
Yeah, that's usually I like to frame the conversations like as far ahead of time as I can. Like when they're thinking like, oh, should, you know, let's say it's, it's Q2 of 2022. And they're like, should we raise in Q3, Q4, Q1? Like, should we wait a year? I mean, it's hard to time the markets, but it's even worse in a bad market if you don't, you know, if your numbers aren't good and you don't objectively look like a good business. So that's generally like how I start the conversation. And then, uh, I mean, honestly, like some of the other framing about how I'm thinking about the market as a whole right now, like I just don't think it's going to be easy. Like I think probably 2020, 2021 is like the easiest time ever to raise money. So just like expect it to be very difficult no matter what people are saying, like, it's just going to be harder than your, your prior round was, or when I, when I invested last year or earlier this year, um, that's how I usually think about it. I think it's, it's, it's like usually a difficult conversation, actually. Like it's not exciting talking about fundraising for like the average, you know, talking about the average founder. We all probably have, you know, companies in our portfolio where it's like, everyone is begging to get money in. Those are great but that's usually not the reality for like the average startup. So, you know, I try to also keep that, keep that view and that like lens and help founders think through that, that like, it's not normal to just suddenly raise at a billion dollar valuation from, you know, all this crazy stuff happening to you. Like you, you hear it all the time because it's exciting to read about, but it, it's not, it's not really the reality. So, you know, what's interesting though, there is this price inflation for the very, very best companies which is this sure. concentration of capital or flight to safety for like the A-star, A-star grade companies, which is like your next gen figmas of the world where funds are actually willing to price up but get the kind of guaranteed 3X rather than have a better price at the A- minus, where it's like, ah, there's still a little bit of hair on it actually. And I'm really seeing that price inflation for the 0.01% of companies, but it is weird to see still. Um, Sorry, but I but I interrupted that. Sarah Packy. Um, I say I, I think of a couple of things. I mean, for me, it's always about just like preserve as much optionality as you can for as long as you can. And um, one pragmatic thing I think about, I, I talk to a lot of pre-seed like at inception type founders and, and even just a simple thing of like, do I raise friends and family or go or raise a pre-seed or go straight to seed? And I'm like, do not go straight to seed. Like if you can take advantage of friends and family and pre-seed investors, like it's totally ridiculous. We could call ourselves like apple and orange uh, investors, but like there is people that identify as friends and family and some people identify as pre-seed and like just take advantage of all of those options if you can. Can I ask Sarah, sorry, I never see pre-seeds anymore. Maybe I'm, but like, I just see three on 15. And that's like maybe two on 10, but it's like the pre-seed round or the friends and family seems to have gone really sadly. Oh, I, I see it, but I also spent, like I'm teaching a class at Stanford this year. So I see a lot of people like right, like in school, coming out of school, like very, very, very early. So I think of it, as it ends up, often it'll end up getting rolled kind of into seed just at maybe like a slightly lower cap. Sometimes that happens, but um, I definitely, I definitely see it. And I think, Founders should consider it even more because once you've raised the seed, now you're in a seed extension and God forbid seed bridge, like don't use the word bridge, but like that land is not a good land to be in. So like, I, I definitely think thinking about pre-seed, like raising one and a half, build something and then go raise like four, three or four or five, you know, in six months, I think gives you a lot. But uh, final one for the quick fire, Packy, just fin finish on that one in terms of the advice. Are you advising portfolio companies only on raising? I think it's the same, same exact thing. Like if you're getting inbound interest, 
certainly worth having those conversations right now. Um, there's a lot of companies that I agree with Turner. Luckily, it seems like a lot of the portfolio, and I'm sure you're seeing this across your portfolios too, has focused on lowering burn and focused on extending runway. So people to Sarah's point are getting more optionality. There's a really tight balance between like really slowly bleeding to death over 36 months because you're not willing to spend anything on growth and then never hitting that point that Turner talks about where you look like a really good investment. But I do think preserving optionality, getting your numbers, whatever you think, and talk to all of your investors on kind of what they think the next round metric should look like. But whatever you can do to get there as quickly and as safely as possible, I would focus on on just getting those, you know, those numbers and metrics in shape. Nothing revolutionary in, in that advice. I changed my mind. Final one before the quick fire, but it's Brian Singerman I had on the show recently from Founders Fund. And he said in COVID, he really didn't like the job because he's so into founder interaction, the in-person, uh, the chemistry that you have from that in-person meeting. And he really didn't do much in, in COVID. Um, and now he's obviously much more active. How did your styles differ, impact your investing mentality, cadence, COVID versus no COVID? Intrigued to hear thoughts there. Yeah, I was born as an investor in in covid and so I, like the the kind of cadence and interaction and all of that that I got used to was uh was on zoom i love meeting with our founders in person i also think that it's really phenomenal that i can have you know monthly meetings with some of our founders who are on the other side of the country or different parts of the world like the most energized i get I'm thinking back over the past month, like the three most energized times that I've had after talking to founders have all been on Zoom. And I've also met founders in person, but you can, I think, have like 90% of the quality of the experience on Zoom and just open the net up to a wider range. I think if I'm leading, if I'm founders fund and I'm doing these like things where I need to get in the factory or whatever, like that's very different. But uh, as a follow, as you know, a, a smaller check in around, I think Zoom is totally fine. Packet is context. Brian was talking about writing two hundred and fifty million dollars. Yeah, so yeah like, exactly. I, I wouldn't feel guilty about that one. That, <laughs> I said yeah. That was a good. It was a good episode. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think just for where we sit in terms of the stage, it's just so different. I mean, we're writing two hundred fifty k checks. He's writing two hundred million. I think it's a very different paradigm. To be honest, I love actually meeting. I love this new paradigm because. We need to meet as many founders as we can if we're building portfolios. Like I'm investing in 25 companies a year. If I go do coffees in person with founders, I can get maybe four done in a day, maybe five on Zoom. I can meet, I can and routinely meet 10 or 12 or 15 founders in a day. Like it's just can hard you, Sarah, to- Can you actually do that? And sorry, I'm fascinated. Can you do that and retain the high quality engagement? I'm just gonna be honest, my brain after five or six, I, I don't think my questions are as good. I don't think my- I, I just struggle like after five or six in one day. Can you do 10 in a day and retain the same quality? Yeah, I mean, I come from an ops and sales background. So, and recruiting, I mean, if you're a recruiter, like you're talking to 10, 15 candidates a day, like, I don't know, maybe my brain's just like wired that way. I take meticulous notes and affinity. Like I, you know, I have a process. Um, so for me, I like, I think, no, I could be better at, the, the trick is then you're passing a lot more. <laughs> so like, you have to be really stay on top of that. And that can be tough, but I, I like being able to meet as much as possible, as many people as possible on zoom. And then, you know, IRL, I think is awesome. But like I had, I've had people I've been on the board of where I've had decent ownership in the company. I didn't meet them for two years in person. And like, 
the main difference was like, oh, you're taller than I thought. But like we knew each other very well, even though we had never met in person. So I do think if you're if you've grown up into to Pagan's point, if you've grown up in the industry, like sitting across the dinner table with someone and like shaking hands over a deal, I could see how this would be very uncomfortable. But if you were born in this era, and then the other thing I'd say is like most of our CEOs and our founders, like they're going to spend a lot of their time selling and influencing people over Zoom. And so I want to see how they do that over Zoom because they're often working remotely. They're selling customers remotely. They're selling in investors remotely. And so they've got to be able to do that pretty well. And, and you, you, can, you can make up for a lot of that in person that you can't do well necessarily on Zoom. So I, lo- I love this format. That's such a good point, actually, Sarah. I hadn't thought about that. I, I also do think for like engineering-centric founders, I think Zoom is much more friendly to their presentation style and less intimidating just as a, a front mm-hmm. of sit across the table. I've sat across the table at LP or uh, LP offices and it's like massive tables and there's six of them and one of you and you're like, this is conducive to a great discussion. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Turner, sorry, I want to let you have a chat. Yeah, yeah, I guess uh, for me, I mean, I kind of started doing it over Zoom and remotely first and then COVID hit and everyone was freaking out. And I was like, what are you guys freaking out about? Like, this is awesome. Um, and I, I try to meet founders ahead of time as much as I can, but it is hard. Like if you, I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, if I invest in a company in, you know, the UK, it's hard to just jump on a flight to invest 100K or 250K, like the cost of the flight, like the cost of doing diligence is like 5% of the investment size. I'm like, it's, it's hard to, to like justify that. But what I do try to do is I, I do travel a decent amount. So there was actually a case last week or two, three weeks ago where we were talking to a founder. I think I wanted to invest and I was going to be in New York the next week. And I was just like, Hey, you want to grab dinner? Like, don't take money for anyone else. Like don't make any decisions. Like let's grab dinner in like five days. And then the next day we're like, all right, we're in. So I try to squeeze that in as I can and, you know, you see the founders and meet them in person, but to everyone's point, like, I don't know, like you can, you can make fun of people for like not doing as much diligence because you, you don't meet them in person, but it's like, we're investing in pre-seed and seed. Like, it's just like two people or one person. Like, what, what are you going to do? Like, what kind of diligence do you need to do? Like, there's nothing my, my, to really fa- do. My favorite so. is mar- market sizing on like consumer social pre-seed and you're yeah, like, like, really your outcome scenario plans for 2030, they look a yeah. little bit smaller than I thought. Uh- <laughs> yeah, so you need to do like diligence, quote unquote, but like, it's, it's not the same as when you're doing like a series C and there's like a hundred million dollars in revenue and, and all, and like hundreds of, or tens of thousands of customers or whatever. So I don't know. Anyways. Yeah. So for me, it's been, it's actually been great. And I've been kind of blending, blending remote and also in person when possible. So. All right. We're going to do a quick fire round because otherwise we could talk all day. Um, so I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. Um, okay. So we're going to start with uh, one of my favorites. What's your biggest miss and how did it change how you think about 30 seconds per one? Scale uh, AI for sure. Uh, I worked, I actually hired Alex in Decora when he was 17 out of high school and uh, worked with Lucy there as well and had seen them do three pivots from VIP passes to clubs to remote uh, matching of mental health caregivers to scale, which was actually based a lot on work we had done together at Cora. And I just saw them pivot too many times. I just didn't think they were going to stick with the idea. Massive miss. Fair enough. I mean, if you started with VIP passes to clubs, it kind of be a downhill from <laughs> the ideation process. I didn't know that. <laughs> he didn't tell me so that. Happy the show for them, either. That's a Paki, you're yeah. great. 
I think it's too early to tell what the biggest misses are. I'd say like a more generalizable thing for me is just, there are so many where to our earlier conversation, I love the company and I didn't get in as much money as I would have wanted. And so as opposed to a miss, it's really just kind of like, damn, I only have a hundred K in that company. Which one? I, I, I can think of a bunch. I want a name, Packy. No name. Confidential. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, you're putting me on the spot. I, I'll, I'll think of one by the end of this lightning round, but there's just a bunch in the first portfolio where it's like, I don't know. I'm just writing 100K checks generally. Like, I wish I had a lot more money in X, Y, or Z company. So who's your portfolio. favorite child? Who's your favorite child, Packy? Come on. That's what we want to know. <laughs> well done, Sarah. Thank you. Yes, Sarah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I can go. Um, I mean, I've only Packy been doing this for- biting, Yeah, but Packy was just not- <laughs> Not biting. That's I'm, like, I'm, that was yours to go for, mate. I'm anyway, trying to get Packy, him off the hot seat. Don't worry, don't worry Tana. You go for it, Tana. <laughs> I mean, I have only been doing this for a few years, so it's really hard to say. Um, but I guess the one that stands out in the lesson I learned was it's like a live streaming e-commerce platform that I, I don't even know what the valuation's up since I first met them, but it's probably like 50 to 100x. I don't, I don't even know how they're doing right now, what to be honest, it? but- uh, it's a company called Whatnot. They do live oh, yeah, stream. No, they, yeah, you know, so, live stream so, I, I do. I do know this. You really missed out there. It's seven and a half billion. You should. Oh be yeah. Wrong. Okay. Yeah. I um, would. I would. I would definitely be upset about that one. I never yeah. saw it, but it's a really good company. So yeah. So uh, so I'm not saying that like I would have been able to get in or anything or like the check size would have worked. I didn't even really try. I mean, I met him. I talked to him, and my thesis was that live stream shopping in China only worked if you had an existing massive user base of hundreds of millions of people. Because when you looked at every large platform, because the thesis that I was hearing from every other investor was it's a hundred billion dollar market in China and it's going to happen here too. And I was like, that's the laziest thinking I've ever seen. And like the more I dug into it, it was like, it's all of those platforms where all this is happening. It's like the equivalent of Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. And I don't think in like no startups, pulled it off in China. So they won't pull it off in the US. And I just kind of wrote it off. And like I said, it was a mistake, obviously. Um, so you, probably should have dug into that one more. Well, you know, live and learn. Uh, don't worry yeah. about it. Uh, yeah, no worries. <laughs> moving swiftly on, let's not harbor. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, um, uh, who's the favorite angel to work with? When we think about constructing rounds, I'm being really uh, political here. I love this question. Who's the one where you're like, I just, I love working with them and I try and bring them into every round. Turner, we can start with you this time. You look like you had a response. Um, I actually didn't. Uh, I was, so I was reviewing just co-investors and my overlap on like who I invest with the most. It's like, like maybe 5% of my portfolio is with the most frequent co-investor, uh, which is maybe good, maybe bad. So oh, you here don't have like a, a roster of angels where you're like, boff, boff, boff. Like for me, it's like Lenny Rajitsky, love, uh, Kyle Parrish, uh, head of sales at Figma, fantastic. Um, uh, a guy, Pajani, the founder of Sneak, uh, the developer tools company, amazing angel. Like mm -hmm. they're three run, like amazing. Yeah, I mean, I probably have about a hundred and it's it's kind of, it's situational. Like there's certain companies I know Harry will like, there's certain companies I know Lenny or Packy will like, like, it, it, like it, it really just depends on the context so and then sometimes like i'll send harry one and like he won't reply or something so it's like i'm not i'm not sure like putting you on the spot specifically but like sometimes Don't people turn won't it, turn it. if you so. want to look through our messages and look for when you last sent me a deal uh you'll find it was before you started investing i think <laughs> <laughs> hey, actually 
I, I, I did send one to 20 minute VC to, to Kieran. So full, full, this is like a week ago. I don't need oh, it. So. All right. He sent it to Kieran. Yes. So he doesn't want to bother you with the details of investing. We've got a bunch of politicians, Sarah. Me and you are the only oh, ones okay. to be straight on. I was going to say, present company excluded, of course. Um, I have a bunch. I mean, unfortunately, I got to meet a lot of solo GPs running the Fund of Funds program at BCB. So I worked with a lot of them. I think um, I love working with Ryan and Vedica at Weekend Fund just because I yeah. think they're really thoughtful with their feedback and they treat founders incredibly well when they meet them. So I definitely give a shout out to them and Julia Lipton, Sriram Krishnan. Like there's a bunch of folks that I think in this whole class do a lot. But I I am very conscious to push founders to look at the diversity of their cap table. So um, I'm actually hosting a panel later this week with 100 women and non-binary angels in San Francisco. And um, I actually have on my LinkedIn a post to a bunch of resources to find diverse angels. Like there's uh, black angels at Google. There's a lot of like alumni forums and um, things out there. So I actually spend my time pu pu pushing people more towards like communities of angels that are diverse, that can bring them uh, more diverse perspectives, help with their DI strategy and often help with other, in other ways like go to market and, and even fundraising in some cases. Baki, hit me with it. And I won't, yeah, I won't, I won't avoid this one. Uh, this one's timely as we're, as we're recording this, my friend Mags College just announced her fund double down. Uh, and she does kind of like the intersection of consumer and web three. Um, and I think like for that specific category, there's nobody better. Uh, so Mags Kala for, for consumer and web three. And that's how I view it generally, right? Like there are things that I'll send to Turner, like if it's a live streaming uh, shopping app, like I send that to, to Turner. Um, if it's a British company, I send it to Harry. No, no, no. still no. I, I actually don't. Uh, mean Sarah, there's room for improvement here. If it's a great no, but, CEO, you'll send them to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so that that's kind of how I, I think about it. I try to find kind of the best angels in a bunch of the different categories that that we're in. Yeah, don't mind, Packy. It's cool. I remember sending you those deals. All good. All good, mate. No worries um, that you did. Um, all good. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want to finish on uh, kind of a split question, which is like, what are you most excited for within the venture landscape in the next three years? And what are you most worried for? And so kind of 30 seconds on each um, and whoever wants to take it first. And this is the last one. Most worried for, I mean, I think Turner kind of covered, uh, you know, a lot of the the downsides uh, of what's going on pretty well earlier. I think what I'm most worried for is just like the supply chain of capital. Like even if these companies are growing really, really well, what happens when they hit the Series B, the Series C? Like when do things open up? I don't think that's an existential worry. I think time uh, will will solve that. But I guess like that's just a big question mark in the air. What I'm excited about is that I I really do feel like we're at this spot where there's just like all these cost curves coming down in different industries are like all these breakthroughs happening. So whether that's the cost of sequencing the human genome or the cost of solar power or, you know, everything that's happening uh, in the generative AI world, or like you can do one of those in a bunch of different categories. And so I think like all these categories that are incredibly cool and incredibly good for the world, if they exist, are like actually almost about to be economically feasible and viable now. And so I think like, the next decade's batch of startups, I think is going to be like different and really cool. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I can. I mean, I guess to echo Packy's sentiment, echo my earlier sentiment. Um, I wouldn't say it's like doom and gloom. It's just like a reality. I think everyone needs to be thinking about is just like, it's a different environment and it's probably going to be more of a difficult environment than we think when we're expecting. Um, and then, yeah, things I'm excited about. Um, 
I mean, I invest in a lot of consumer stuff and you look at the big mega consumer conglomerate monopolies and their stock prices are down like 70%. And that's awesome. I mean, like the market's basically saying like, you know, we need new ones. So um, I think it's just like a new opportunity to build cool new products for, for consumers that, you know, solve problems for them. I'll do the same flip. What I'm concerned about, so this is a pretty pragmatic, but I, I spend a lot of time thinking about DEI and diversity and inclusion in the industry. I was the first female partner at Bain in like 20 years. And so I think a lot about like what happened in that space. And what I'm really worried about is there's a lot of, there were a lot of like earmarked multicultural emerging manager funds that came up after Me Too and George Floyd. And a lot of people raised their first funds. But what I'm worried about is a lot of those institutions did not build evergreen sources of capital for those managers. And so when they come up for like fund two or fund three, like I'm worried that there's not going to actually be the same stable LP base that like for a lot of traditional funds have from going from fund one to fund two. So I'm, I'm very concerned about emerging managers that are underrepresented um, and what's going to happen to fund twos and threes. So if you are an LP out there, look for those people, <laughs> find them for their fund two and three, because I do think there's a lot of really incredible talent that's come into the industry over the last few years. Um, on the positive side, I mean, I just, I love what I get to do. I love helping and supporting founder CEOs. And I think uh, recently Chamath and All In uh, was talking about how, you know, if AI does in fact take over a lot more of our workflows, the scarce thing will actually be EQ. And I love that. I mean, I think that's a really interesting way to think about how valuable like our emotional resonance with the people that we work with. And it's a lot of what I base my fund and product around. So I'm just, I just love that we get to do what we do. And I'm just so excited to be able to do more of it over the next few years. I, I totally agree. Guys, I've loved this. Thank you so much for putting up with uh, my wandering questions, my incredible sassiness and uh, being so tolerant. This has been so much fun. So huge pleasure.